I'm pretty sure I said at the beginning of this talk that there are many possible approaches to ethics, uh, many different perspectives we can uh, bring to bear on uh, that whole domain of our concern, of our existence. And uh, there are different systems of moral philosophy. Uh, so, for example, there's um, utilitarianism. Some of you will know this is uh, originating with Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. And in that, in that kind of approach, the goodness, or what is good, is uh, what has utility. In other words, what is useful. That's how you uh, measure and adjudicate uh, actions and behavior. So uh, behavior and actions are chosen for their usefulness, or rather for the usefulness of their consequences. So you have an eye to the, 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 the consequences, uh, what, what the likely consequence of an action, and you, you kind of measure its usefulness. Usefulness in that system, utility in that system, is usually thought of as... Um, maximizing uh, pleasure over pain uh, for the greatest number of people. Uh, maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain, maximizing happiness, whatever exactly that means, and, and maximizing well-being of the greatest possible number of people. Uh, note also, as in so many moral systems of thought, the anthropocentrism there is usually focused, or usually focused just on people uh, and not other species. Um, so there are variations within utilitarianism, there's, there's different uh, variations of, of that kind of um, approach. And like all approaches, it will have its particular strengths and weaknesses and its particular sort of difficulties that it encounters or not. Um, so you could hear when I was saying that, how exactly do you measure happiness? What exactly do you mean by well-being? Uh, how do you try and assess these things? Um, also, what is the uh, radius of concern, if you like, uh, in terms of which greatest number of people, where and when? So, for example, you know, some of these extinction rebellion um, actions involves blocking roads or bridges, and the traffic stops, and people are held up um, who are, you know, part of the traffic and trying to get somewhere, go to work, or this or that. So there's a kind of inconvenience for for some people, and. Um, for a certain number of people, there's an, there's an inconvenience and maybe other, maybe financial loss, who knows what. Uh, so some people were critical, oh, you're being selfish by blocking the traffic that way, you're being self-indulgent, etc. But widening the concern, obviously, um, it's like, okay, there's these people in the traffic jam who have been inconvenienced, who may experience some loss of profit or... Um, some hassle or, or whatever, a decrease in their happiness for some time. One could widen that sphere to the whole of um, society or the whole of humanity or the whole of humanity also 
in including future species, um, so in future generations, or including uh, not just all that, but all species. Um, and then when you start weighing it up that way from a utilitarian perspective, um, if there's some chance that that kind of action has an effect uh, globally on government policy and corporate policy, etc., uh, then the net reduction in uh, pain, the net increase in uh, likely well-being and happiness may be... Uh, may be justified, uh, may, may be measured to be make it worthwhile. But, you know, you run into all kinds of difficulties in terms of measurement, etc. there. Anyway, we have been uh, approaching and discussing ethics and, and questions about ethics from, I guess, m- mostly what people would call a, uh, the perspective of virtue ethics where the emphasis is um, less on the consequence and more on the subject, uh, the, the moral subject, the person um, uh, and their virtues and values and what they're investing in and what they're energizing and what they're working towards and what they're sensitive to. Um, and here, uh, in that perspective, there's a, there's a shift of emphasis, as I said, and... Um, Moral values, as as values, moral values are, are not regarded as dependent on or proportional to uh, their worth. Is not their value is not proportional to, um, as John Finley says, as he kind of summarizes Hartman's approach, is not uh, dependent on the amount or degree of the lower values they actualize or aim at. They're they're of a different moral values are a different, higher, better order than the lower values. So he gives an example. For example, the value of active justice in a moral agent. So a person um, working towards or implementing a situation of justice, let's say, between two parties, people or communities, whatever. The value of that active justice is much higher than the goods values, the goods value of the apportionments they affect. In other words, Someone comes in, let's say it's a judge or someone else, and reapportions um, money or property or whatever. However much or however little the goods value of the money or the property they redistribute uh, uh, justly according to the measures of justice, however little or great the goods value is, the value of the of the the moral value of the justice stands uh, above that. It's much higher. It's on a completely different level. So there's a different emphasis, but we also said, I also said that, um, you know, we can think sometimes, and most people often nowadays, what's more popular, I think, is to think, is to consider in terms of the efficacy of one's actions, the consequences and what will work. So when we approach something like climate change, species loss, these kinds of um, uh, huge, uh, almost overwhelming uh, problems and issues, crises we face, um, and we think about, yes, we need something that's efficacious, we need something that's going to make a difference. And of course, that's the case. So there's a kind of... uh, uh, there's 
two two possible kind of ways in the the way of emphasizing virtue or considering virtues values and the way of considering efficacy and I pointed out earlier that um, if there's too much of an emphasis on virtue or only an emphasis on virtue um, disregarding a consideration of the efficacy of our actions then that overemphasis on virtue is itself um, not a virtue it's what what you might call it a disvalue it's not a value it's a disvalue and one has been in a way so uh, narrowly concerned with the virtue in, uh, and neglectful of the efficacy so this whole approach of virtue ethics is one angle one approach and like all these things we can have flexibility uh, in, in how we approach at different times or even the relative weights of consideration between, let's say, virtue ethics and considerations of efficacy. We don't always have to approach a situation, a moral situation, a moral crisis, a social situation, an environmental situation, thinking uh, predominantly about virtue. But it becomes, it can be part of uh, our moral equipment, part of our moral calibration, our moral instrument. And we can um, move in and out of that. Virtue ethics does lend itself, I hope it's clear by now, does lend itself to a connection with soul making. And in some of the ways that I've in, in the ways that I've um, uh, gone into a little bit. But even when we consider soul making, you know, um, the intention for soul making in life um, is not always going to be primary, and neither should it always be primary. There are other issues, there are other concerns, there are other demands in life. So we move in and out in our lives as practitioners, as soul making practitioners. We move in and out of emphasizing or prioritizing an intention for soul making, and that's that's uh, appropriate. The flexibility, uh, flexibility of way of looking, flexibility of approach, perspective, uh, etc., is is really crucial. And so there's this whole when we talk, when we consider values and virtues, there's this whole possibility of, to some extent, delineating uh, and, and sensing. Uh, a kind of hierarchy of values as higher values and lower values and to some extent that's possible to to discern uh, where things stand where two values might stand relative to each other on that hierarchy on what Harman calls the scale of values and in his way of thinking goodness is the inclination, the tendency to choose the higher value um, so sometimes, like we said, sometimes this is obvious. Um, it's obvious uh, that this value is higher than that value among moral values. It's obvious, as we said just now, that moral uh, values are higher than goods values in, in, that, in that way of thinking, that way of... It's really a kind of sensibility, that sensibility to existence, in that sensibility to existence, that soul sensitivity, sensibility to existence. Moral values are higher than goods values. But some, so some of those distinctions are obvious. Some of those distinctions of grade, uh, of height uh, between relative height between values, or some are much less obvious. Um, and it also uh, 
I think is important to realize that um, the rank, or what, what Hartman calls the grade, the, the, the place on the hierarchy of values, is not necessarily inherent um, in the value uh, only. So to some extent it is, but also we have this, these other considerations. For example, the fact that uh, we might need to consider a virtue or a value as a complex of other virtues and values. So that that already, with this notion of a counterweight needed, etc. So that already complicates the issue uh, when, when we consider that the whole, we're really talking about uh, balances and spectra uh, rather than single, cut-and-dry, black-and-white virtues. And the second uh, reason that the rank or grade or height of a value is not necessarily inherent just in the value itself is that also, again, when we consider it with a bit more uh, psychological breadth and sophistication, subtlety of discernment and awareness, you also start to, to realize that the the chitta, the, the soul, approaches the actualization or um, its intention, the actualization of a virtue or the intention towards a virtue with with all kinds of um, factors and perspectives. So the mind, the heart, the being, the, the soul um, brings a, a lot to its moral intentions and to, to its working towards uh, a, a value or, or an, an actualization of a value or a virtue. So, for example, it might be um, that wrapped up in the chitta at that time um, is uh, is is uh, fear, and one is actually just um, intending a certain action, maybe even intending a, a virtue or a value, but it's coming out of fear. And as such, it's a bit more narrow-minded or reactive. Or it might be working against fear. Uh, one, one needs to overcome a certain fear to uh, get behind that value and, uh, and cultivate that virtue and instantiate it. And so we might say that when it comes out of fear, when it's prompted by fear and that kind of narrow contraction, perhaps it has less value less height, so to speak, than when, one ha- than when there's no fear and it's a, a freer choice, uh, a, a freer moral choice. It's coming more from the moral sensibility rather than a sense of fear and reactivity. And may- maybe you could say, maybe some people say it's even higher when one has to overcome fear in oneself. I'm afraid of the consequences. If I speak up uh, courageously, I'm afraid of the consequences. I'm afraid, um, or, you know, in protest, I'm afraid of the consequences of getting uh, arrested. I'm afraid of the consequences of getting a criminal record. I'm afraid of what people think. I'm afraid of getting ostracized, etc. And perhaps that then um, can be considered a, a higher uh, value. Uh, or virtue, um, perhaps. Um, sometimes our uh, virtuous behavior and intentions come out of action a narrow-mindedness. There's a kind of brittleness there, a kind of narrow attachment to some kind of code that's been handed down to us. Sometimes it comes out of habit, and it's just the, the almost uh, mechanical churning of habit 
in, uh, in the consciousness. Sometimes a value takes a lot of exertion in some way. To, to actualize a value takes a lot of exertion on our part, or, or us a big stretch of, of the soul, of the being, in some, or, or of, the, of the body even in, in some way. And then uh, the whole way of looking at self, other, world, and our very uh, intention, our will, our desire, our eros, ethically, that that can vary hugely. And so we might say that um, there's a higher virtue when those ways of looking are richer, deeper, wider, more noble, more ensouled. So all these other factors come in, and we might say that the height or grade of a value or a virtue um, depends also on on those, um, all those other factors. And there, uh, what else is going on in the whole being? The totality—it's a function, if you like. The height, to a certain extent, is a function of that whole complex of intentions and ways of looking and factors, forces. Uh, in, in the psyche. So with any virtuous intention or moral action, um, we can, there can be a kind of flat, if you like, ego level version, uh, a version that's um, based on some kind of uh, fixated image, what we might call in our soul-making language, or it's kind of impoverished, it's an impoverished image. Um, that kind of version of the same virtue looks the same to a certain extent, or it could be um, much more soulful, much richer, multi-dimensional, with a sense of divinity, with all of that. And there's a spectrum here. Again, it's not black and white. There's a whole spectrum. But all these, uh, once we start to attune in this way and discern in this way, such as, wow, it's really quite a complex territory here in terms of judging heights uh, of values and virtues. So some care is needed in that. When we talk about, for example, um, climate change, but even more so about species extinction, massive extinction going on of other species at the moment, at the hands of, of unthinking human beings. Um, I wonder whether that um, that particular the care for species ex- extinction is an example of, of a higher value. Um, so it's not uh, it's not the same as caring for the suffering of one animal or even a group of animals. It's something different, as I've touched on before. It's not. It's actually not just about suffering. So we'll come back to this. What's the relationship between a care about suffering and um, our ethics and soul-making? What's the uh, relationship in that nexus? Reduction of suffering, care, um, care for ethics and soul-making. So I remember, again, uh, um, some years ago reading something George Marshall used to put out and he criticised that a lot of the sort of um, media messages promoting a 
trying to promote a concern for climate change um, were, would have a polar bear on them. The, the earth is heating up, the ice is going to melt, the polar bears are going to suffer, and they may disappear. And he would he was quite vociferous in, in attacking that kind of trope. Um, because he said, it doesn't actually work. For most people, uh, in terms of galvanizing uh, a response um, from people uh, in relation to climate change, um, you get the cute polar bear, but polar bears live in the North Pole, and, um, and, and you don't really encounter polar bears. Uh, most people don't really encounter polar bears in their life. And most people would just look at an ad like that and somewhere in the psyche and think, well, um, it's not really my concern or my children's concern. So most people are concerned about themselves and their children. Which to me is also pro- you know, in itself problematic, as we've touched on. Um, so, yes, uh, I would say um, there's some truth in that. And maybe the plight of the polar bear and the possible uh, extinction or decimation of that species. I'm not talking about the suffering of individual polar bears. I'm talking about the, the species. Maybe the um, the sensibility to that con- that concern, the sensibil- the sensitivity to the tragedy of species loss and the crime, really, of ecocide and species loss and species uh, extinction, species uh, extinguishing those crimes. Maybe that kind of um, sensitivity is actually a higher virtue. It, um, it correlates with a higher value. And as we said, along with Hartman, some people uh, may have just a greater capacity uh, a greater talent for um, those kinds of virtues, or perhaps that kind of virtue, or perhaps higher virtues in general, just as um, in Hartman's uh, explanation, some people have more talent for mathematical ideas, or we could say some people have more aesthetic or um, musical talent or art. You can have a talent for values. And the question is, can that be trained? Can we encourage that kind of uh, extension of the moral sensibility in ourselves, in each other, in society, in schools? Can we support uh, a growth of an education of our moral capacity and sensibility, sensitivity? Like I said, there's, uh, we talked about Polly Higgins, but also recently there was um, the UN Executive Director for the, I think it's called the Convention on Support, uh, the Convention for the Support of Biological Diversity or something like that. And again, I've forgotten her name, but she also said um, this this biological diversity, you know, the species diversity, the, the thriving of many different species, Uh, is necessary to maintain the natural life support systems on which humanity depends. And 
that she added with biodiversity, with this um, need for a richness and a plethora of different species. With biodiversity, it is not so clear as with climate change, where people might feel the impact in their everyday life. Um, with biodiversity, it's not so clear. But by the time you feel what is hap- happening, it's too late for us. It will be too late for us when the bees stop pollinating because there aren't enough bees. We will suffer in terms of our agriculture. Um, so I've touched on this before, but to me it's an important consideration. You know, is there uh, is there something asked of a different order, a different height of moral sensibility here? What if scientists found uh, found out a certain species? I don't know kind of species was was actually useless. It didn't really provide anything for the ecosystem. The ecosystem could get on fine without it, whatever ecosystem it was in. And uh, we could get on fine without it, and other species could get on pretty fine without it. Perhaps it's just uh, merely beautiful, merely graceful, merely, merely remarkable, and merely miraculous. And perhaps it's not even beautiful. You know, is a haddock beautiful? We have also, uh, again, a, a, a narrow sensibility in terms of beauty, often, is the case. So the polar bears tend to be with him. I mean, they're, <laughs> um, they're potentially very dangerous animals, but um, but they're, you know, furry and cuddly and warm. A haddock is uh, cold and slippery and wet, <laughs> and uh, to most people's eyes, not that beautiful. But then, if there was this useless species, would it then be okay if our, uh, ethically, if our actions made it forever extinct? There's some, there's some other, other level here that's, I think, important, some other level of sensibility to me. And, you know, is this an elitist... Uh, sort of request, an elitist demand, an elitist aspiration. Yeah, maybe it is. Um, But I said right at the beginning, you know, I may sound like an elitist. I I probably am an elitist. Um, You know, the whole movement towards awakening is a very elitist movement. It's not like everyone's really going to take that up, even in terms of how many Dharma people really take up uh, the, the real... Seriously, a real movement to deep, uh, deep awakening and insight. So it's only you know a small portion of even Dharma people. Soul making us so much in terms of of us in terms of our skills and the, the aspects of our being, the demands, the stretches, the um, the know how, the art of it. Samadhi, you know, even you know I was a, a musician. It's elitist. Not everyone. Um, not everyone can do that or train that way, and, and uh, uh, to take that to to you know a high level of art. But again, I recall um, Hartman's notion of the noble and his kind of insistence that it's through the noble few, uh, those who stretch the sensibility, uh, that humanity evolves spiritually uh, through their their leading. They're opening the doors um, through which more and more people then uh, follow after them are kind of um, converted or infected. Uh, 
with the, that sensibility, that moral sensibility. Of course, in that in that kind of care or respect for or um, sacred place given to species and ecosystems, etc., we're saying is a high value. It's not really a new value because indigenous cultures would be um, totally rooted in that. So it might be its resurrection is relatively new for our time. But still, there may be a big ask in this, and George Marshall may be right to a certain extent that it's um, only some people are going to be really moved by the plight of, let's say, the polar bear. Uh, But still, if we talk about our life and our soul and um, the deeper and wider needs of the earth, of humanity, certainly of the species, um, then this is a consideration stretching, opening, heightening our moral sensibilities. And as I said, um, a species loss is not the same as concern for the suffering of uh, one animal or even of, uh, you know, many large numbers of animals. There's something else, there's some other sensibility. And all this, what we've been talking about, um, begs the question to a certain extent of what then is the relationship of these ways of thinking about ethics and the whole um, thrust and intention, primary thrust and intention of the Dharma to reduce suffering. So, you know, happily, our attraction to a need for moral values is often um, satisfied to a certain extent, to a certain extent at least, but um, uh, in our attention to a need for and pursuit of a reduction in suffering, a reduction in dukkha. Um, but most, in most cases, it might not be enough to... Uh, notice that there are, in fact, two directions of our desire there. So, keep the precepts, for example, as an as a ethical investment and uh, commitment uh, reduces some suffering. But, again, there may be, as I said, two directions or two strata of our intention here. So, the love of... Um, higher moral values, the love, uh, the attraction and the eros for a higher ethos, or an ethos that encompasses the higher, that cares about the higher, Um, the beauty of sacrifice, the images and archetypes and values bound up in a fuller and more powerful devotion to ethics may well not overlap with the idea or the thrust, the intention for decreasing suffering other than as um, a promise of uh, reward, uh, of a future rebirth or heaven or whatever you might believe. Or if there are gifts and rewards from, from a devotion like that, a kind of deep, high, wide, um, very uh, attuned uh, moral sensibility and commitments. If there are rewards from such a devotion in some cases, um, they are... Uh, relatively subtle. So the um, decrease in, in the, the kind of attenuation of self-sense, the open 
appearance of heart, the seeing, the dependent arising of the perception of self, other world. These are all relatively subtle um, gifts, if you like, rewards from that kind of devotion. So there's some reduction of um, certainly per- certainly only some reduction of personal suffering. Maybe we can say the larger picture, um, there's a reduction of suffering. But we're really talking about two strands of intention, the reduction of suffering and the love of uh, moral values, and particularly of the higher moral values. And they may overlap to a certain extent, but they are also not completely the same. And again, the question is, what do we love and what do we want? What are we devoted to? The decrease of suffering or the beauty and soul attraction of uh, moral values? So as I said, they're not all exactly and always the same thing. There's not a complete overlap between the two. And we said, because values are an element of sensing the soul, one of the 28 elements we've delineated so far, there is an overlap with soul-making. Many people, I've said this before, many people, perhaps most people would assume at first that an overlap with um, decreasing uh, our suffering uh, would be more, more likely to be the case. The overlap between the concern um, for morals and the uh, reduction of suffering. And they would harbour some kind of moral, uh, some kind of suspicion of uh, prioritisation of soul-making intentions. But, as we said, soul-making intentions implicitly or explicitly include a devotion to values, or rather to some or other values from the sort of the, the pantheon, the zodiac of values. So I mentioned um, the Buddha and his choice to leave his family and generally considering his zest and devotion to know the end of suffering, to not be reborn, to teach others, perhaps his mystical, uh, mystical hunger, his hunger to know the mystical. You don't really hear that one so much in the Pali Canon. And that devotion, that intention, uh, trumped his sense of his moral responsibility to be there for his wife and his young son. So he basically abandoned them in this uh, antinomy, in this conflict of values. He chose one. Now, you could argue that in his life he always chose what would um, maximally lessen the suffering for the totality in all time, which is as we started this part of the talk, so that's a version of utilitarianism. And then that's how he was thinking. He was, you know, if I become a Buddha, I'll probably help more people than if I stay at home and become a world monarch and keep with my um, family. Uh, and so many people would kind of construe it that way. But he chose that because in the totality of things it would uh, it would reduce more suffering and increase more happiness for more people over time than if he stayed at home and um, uh, did other stuff, ruled, ruled a kingdom, etc. 
But actually, that seems to me, uh, um, if I'm honest, and, and if we look at, feel into it a little more carefully, it seems a bit of a psychologically naive view or belief or assertion. Maybe that's um, heretical. So if you feel into the psychology there, is that really what's going on? That he was sort of uh, weighing up, calculating a probable amounts of suffering, uh, pain that could be avoided, pleasure that could be increased. Or was was um, you know his drive, his love, his devotion, his determination, his desire, his choice, uh, coming out of um, a richer psychology that had also to do with his soul. What was beautiful to him? What called him? To say all this, um, you know, another way or approach it from a slightly different um, direction. Take for example, meta. Um, it's regarded as a value in Buddha Dharma, but it's as a value, it's subordinate to and dependent on the higher and, in a way, more fundamental, more central value given to reducing suffering. Actually, the, the direction of ending suffering. So metta is one component, one element in that um, in that path that prioritizes the end of suffering. And its primary purpose is for that. Ending rebirth. So metta is a value in that system of thought because it reduces suffering and leads to the end of suffering, which is its primary value. Now, probably, um, to use um, philosophical jargon, on the margins of the text, in the margins of the Pali Canon, so to speak, between the lines and sort of briefly alluded to um, with the perfume, in the margins of the text and discourse, if we were to deconstruct it, if we use philosophical language, um, there'll be many messages, um, even in the Pali Canon, attesting to the independent value of uh, metta and sila. So primarily they're given as stepping stones. Their function is, um, to, is to reduce suffering and actually, more primarily, as stepping stones on the path to ending suffering, to not reborn, as we said before. But the beauty of metta and the beauty of sila are uh, probably there. Uh, the, 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 the Pali they can't help seep out because... And, and be there, sort of at the edges of the main point of, of the teachings. So there's a certain way we think about the Dharma in terms of reducing suffering. Of course, the Mahayana extends that to include all beings, etc. But there's also other factors, and I think it is important to be uh, a little more psychologically sophisticated, a little fuller in our um, in our gaze, psych- at the psychology of all this, what's really going on, what really are we loving and wanting, what's really motivating us with all this. Um, again, if uh, 
if I just look around me right now, it's interesting. So this this question about ethics, the the, the emphasis in Buddha Dharma on reducing suffering, and that that principal way of conceiving what we're doing, um, or that conception of that as the principal thing we're doing, the main thing, the main purpose, and ethics and soul making and all that. And I look around me right now, and certainly in Devon, where I live, uh, there is very suddenly, really, uh, a lot of Dharma people uh, suddenly involved in, in <coughs> um, for example, Extinction Rebellion and actions uh, on the streets against uh, against inaction uh, 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 for climate change and against species loss, etc., um, and more widely in the UK as well, something suddenly there's been uh, a quite a dramatic change, almost black and white, um, uh, among Dharma folks. Maybe in other countries it's starting, or there's the potential seeds, the potential rumblings of that. Maybe in the US something's starting, but certainly around here, it's um, it's, it's a dramatic quantum leap, a sudden shift. I think only some of that, I don't know what proportion, only only some proportion probably, um, I, I don't actually know, but only some of that is because of soul-making Dharma teachings. Somehow other conditions um, have come together for this sudden ignition of the wildfire in, in, in the Dharma community, of the wildfire in the Dharma community. Is it the last IPCC report that was much more uh, stark in its warnings, much more grave, much more uh, demanding or insinuating that rapid action needs to happen? Is it that most of these Dharma people who are getting involved now are actually looking at it through the lens of reducing suffering in the world and for others? Um, is it just that there's a kind of critical mass of enough people and something starts snowballing and if you know three of your friends are talking about um, this thing and are being involved and sharing with you how, how it's touched them and how wonderful it was and how they actually survived in action fine etc and how they're even thinking of maybe being arrestable or whatever that's has an effect the people around me so it's less you know a few lone voices crying in the wilderness so I don't know I don't know what all those conditions are I think like I said I think the soul making dharma is just one small piece that's relevant for some people and the question more for this um, this fire uh, of commitment and action and engagement that's uh, uh, struck up the question is really can it stay steady can it be mature? Remember on one of the retreats, uh, one of the series of talks, we talked about um, the fire, mastering the fire and the way different soul fires burn, the way eros burns in souls differently and at different times and depending on different conditions. And to have a fire that just flares up and then goes out, um, maybe not so helpful as something that's actually more, more mature because it's steadier. It's not going to be blown out at the, the next little wind. So all these are, are questions, um, but 
it may be, as I said, that for many of those people it's really just a consideration. It is a utilitarian consideration of weighing up of what's the net amount of suffering here. And that's what's galvanizing their response. And it's, it's, what, it's what's rather framing their perspective and their conceiving of the whole issue and whether to get involved or not. Um, and and the, the commitment and the action and the engagement is supported by a whole web of other conditions. I don't know. But if, again, if we stay with this question of the, the, the relationship, the nexus between reducing suffering and uh, soul-making and ethics, etc., and values. As I've said before, uh, when talking about Buddha Dharma, talking about awakening, and there's a um, kind of uh, petering out of the whole notion of awakening as an ending of rebirth, ending the cycle of rebirth. It's, I don't know, fewer and fewer people who, who actually, they may believe in rebirth, but that that's actually at the core of their being, what they're aiming for is to end their rebirth. Um, that's become, I think, in Western Dharma, certainly in the people I meet, get a sense from and hear from, it's become rarer and rarer. So that opens up, what are we actually aiming for what do, uh, when we're uh, talking about the goal of the path and awakening, if it's not ending rebirth? So it might be just this, uh, as I said, utilitarian working towards a reduction of suffering, maybe just my suffering, maybe much wider in the more Mahayana sense um, of all beings. But... There's something else. There's other factors, as I've been saying. And there's something about meaningfulness. As we said, that's an element of soul-making. It's an element of the imaginal. It's an element of sensing the soul. And when we take that to our... Uh, take the consideration of meaningfulness and extend it to our whole life, it is... Um, Interesting to us, what gives us meaningfulness? And is it, um, is it only a kind of utilitarian reduction of suffering? So yes, that has its place, absolutely. But there's, um, there are other strata and factors that are uh, part of our psyche and need to be, we need to kind of be aware of uh, more consciously aware of, I think, when we when we look at what's going on for us and what what renders life uh, fruitful, fulfilling, meaningful. So there's a quote from um, Predrak Chikovaki. I think I mentioned it before in another series of talks. He wrote a book about Hartman, which uh, is I thought quite a good book, and. And he says, one of the central claims of Hartman's entire philosophical opus is not just around um, morality and ethics, but one of the claims, one of the central claims of Hartman's entire philosophical opus is that is that it is precisely useful values. Sorry, <laughs> it is precisely useless values that bestow meaning upon life. It is precisely useless values that bestow meaning upon life. By uselessness, he means neither fruitlessness nor meaninglessness. Uselessness only refers to the absence of any tangible purpose or visible end. 
It is on such useless values that we depend when we attempt to bestow meaning on our strivings and struggles. So he would also include in that, I'm pretty sure, well I certainly do, um, art as something you know, ultimately useless. So the whole notion of, as I said for me, aesthetics and the consideration of beauty is totally wrapped up in the in our um, uh, in the domain of um, or it's connected with it's wrapped up in this domain of uh, the useless values for me there's almost no boundary between um, aesthetic concerns the love of beauty, the care for beauty and moral concerns So, there are values that are, in a way, useless. They don't serve an obvious function in our life. They're not kind of easily um, uh, brought under a, a utilitarian kind of framework. And these are uh, often the higher values. The higher values are often useless. So, for example, um, uh, an aesthetic sensibility is kind of useless from a certain perspective. But, as I said, I think in the last part, these higher values need to uh, rest on the lower values as a foundation. They depend on the lower. And without them, they're kind of hollow. So a care for higher values, a care for aesthetics, for example, that doesn't care for uh, justice or kindness, uh, completely neglects those, ju just, um, it causes a collapse in the whole um, value of the aesthetic care. Uh, let me read again a few things from Hartman here. Um, so the, the more elementary uh, values, the, the, the lower values, um, the, the more negative commandments go with them. So they uh, prohibitions, thou shalt not steal, not murder, etc. Um, and it, if you like, when they're transgressed, then the seriousness of that transgression of a lower value is much much more serious than the omission or transgression of a higher value. So not to engage in a care for aesthetics, not to uh, cultivate one's, um, what Hartman calls the ideal personality, to, to attune to that, to listen to the duties of that. That's... Uh, if a person neglects to do that or um, leaves that out of their aspirations, then the transgression is not as serious as, um, for example, killing or, or stealing or whatever. And he says, so you can't really command higher values, um, but you can make commandments for the lower values in the form of prohibitions. He says, only brotherly love can be commanded of the higher values. And that... Uh, not in the strict sense. So he said, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's not really a commandment, it's a kind of aspiration. 
and personal love, what he calls personal love, which is the love of another um, in a way that, in our language, in a way that sees them as image. Uh, in his language, it's the, the way a, a love of another that uh, senses and cares for and is attuned for their ideal personality. The uh, soul essence, if you like. The image. Um, personal love, he says, cannot be commanded at all. But genuine morality, he says, is built from below up. Its essence is not the ideal self-existence of values, but their actualization in life. In other words, we have to um, act on these. Only upon the actualization of the lower does the actualization of a higher value rest solidly. It's just different words of saying what we just said. And without that, as I said, they're hollow. They, 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 they kind of, they, they, they smell off. If there's not, uh, if there's a transgression of lower values, but one cares for higher values, something's off. And it strikes one as off. In transgressing against a lower value, um, it has more consequences. It has a consequences on a, a wider range of our existence. So the consequences of one person um, not caring about this or that particular higher value are much more limited. So the higher value, he writes, has a narrower field of activity, contains less palpable substance. Its existence for itself is more pronounced. What's the purpose of that higher value? It exists for itself. This concern with beauty, this concern even with my ideal personality. Yes, if I can actualize, if I can um, follow my soul's calling, if I can um, listen for the angel out ahead and do my duty, that will bestow gifts on the world. But in a way, it's just for itself. It's for the beauty of itself, for the soul-making itself. Its existence for itself is more pronounced the higher value. It stands and falls for itself alone. When it suffers injury, it injures little else, only what stands above it in order of rank. The basis beneath it remains intact. This becomes most evident in extreme cases like that of the dispensing of spiritual value, the sort of radiant virtue that I was talking about, which is altogether useless and has nothing further dependent upon it. writing beautiful music, whatever it is, it's useless. Nothing else is dependent on it, or very little. It is similar with love of the remotest, personal love, and all the values of the individual personality, all these higher kinds of values. And, just one more short passage. So the higher values, he writes, possess their superiority in the conferring of meaning upon life and in its fulfillment. Those are the ones that really give this sense of meaningfulness and fulfillment in our life. For the meaning of the moral life, he writes, is no more to be found in the lower values than its foundations are to be found in the higher.
if we have only a concern for the lower values, then, as I said earlier, there can be a kind of um, impoverishment of our whole life. Our whole, um, our whole ethical life is kind of impoverished by that limitation. That we're just concerned with lower values, and it can be like Jesus criticized the Pharisees. Everything's kind of low. There isn't this high uh, nobility in the sense that I would use the word. There isn't this um, love, love of value and aspiration. Something's not stretching into the beyonds with the eros, with the height, with the soul-making there. So the higher values have beyondness, as we talked about. They have dimensionality. Um, they are sense of them. There's unfathomability there, mystery, irreducibility. And all this supports them, allows them to become... Um, erotically imaginal objects for us, beloved erotic imaginal objects. And to give, to give as I said, a, a sense of meaning, meaningfulness and fulfillment in our life. Somewhere, Hartman wrote also something like, the aims of our life, of our moral life, should be placed so high that we can only just discern them. But their foundations should be laid as firmly as possible. When we talk about, when we consider climate change and species extinction, mass species extinction, um, those uh, two uh, things are, are threatening the foundations, are really threats to the foundations of many people's lives, certainly many animals' lives and many species' lives, but um, but they're also foundations, uh, they also threaten the foundations, and the foundations of existence, that people have water um, to drink that's not um, undrinkable because the, the sea has risen and the salt water has gotten into the water, that people will not live in climates where uh, it's actually too hot to cool the body at certain times of the year. People die from uh, the heat where there's enough rain but no flooding and all, all this. So the foundations are threatened um, through those uh, that, that kind of unfolding and the, the lack of care with regard to climate change and species extinction. But also, at the same time, as the, it's an issue of foundations here and thus it's, it's, they are issues that pertain to the lower moral values. Thou shalt not kill? Well, you know, watch your climate emissions, or watch our climate emissions, or take care, you know, that the government, make sure that the governments and the corporations um, act, because we're not going to solve this just by on the, on the back of our individual efforts at, at lowering our, our personal emissions. Something much more systemic needs to happen. But yes, those issues are issues that um, are touch on uh, the foundations of human beings. What, what human beings need for life. Water, air, uh, an adequate climate, etc. Food. But they also, there's something in those issues, we've been saying that... that um, implicates, involves, touches on, asks for 
uh, our sensitivity to really to the highest values and virtues. So yes, George Marshall, and, and I think more and more now people are realizing that yes, climate change, and to a less extent, people realize that species extinction does uh, will have is having a big impact on the foundations, the material foundations of human existence, and as such, for for many many people, and eventually for everyone, and as such, it touches on, it implicates uh, the the foundational, the lower. Uh, moral values and virtues and commandments. But there's also something here that touches on the highest values, that calls in, that asks for um, an extension in range and height of our moral sensitivity, I would say. So if it's only a perspective of foundations, then some things in tackling climate change are just completely okay. So the idea of, um, which some many people have touted and some people think will be a kind of inevitable solution because humanity is being too slow at reducing emissions. The possibility of geoengineering, I've forgotten the exact name, it's like uh, putting certain particles of uh, something or other into the atmosphere, some chemical particles, spraying particles of this chemical into the high atmosphere, and they will reflect back a large proportion of the sunlight. So the earth will cool instead of the warming and the global warming that's caused by the carbon emissions. So you actually keep the same amount of carbon or even put more carbon in and, and reduce the temperature of the earth and then therefore uh, allegedly the problems, it will only solve part of the problems, the problems of um, global warming by cooling, cooling the temperature. One of the side effects of that apparently is that it will make the sky white so the sky would, uh, if there's enough of these particles in there, the sky would no longer be blue, it would be white. If we're only thinking from the perspective of um, foundations of, of um, human life and material needs and therefore the foundational or lower values, then that's okay. Because what difference does it make? Blue sky, white sky... Or if with noise pollution and light pollution, it's getting difficult to find places in the world that are not full of the sound of uh, mostly combustion engines burning fossil fuels. But noise and light pollution are would be okay from that perspective of just addressing the foundational, just thinking about in terms of reducing suffering just thinking in terms of the lower values, just sensing it on that level and addressing the foundations, the material foundations of human existence. Noise and light pollution would be okay as long as we can't measure any effect on health or pleasure, however we measure that, or GDP. So something, to me, something would be missing there. I don't know how it sounds to you, but it doesn't sound okay to me. My heart hurts as I'm saying this. To me, to, to my soul, something else is needed. Something else is calling, a deepening, a widening, an ensouling of ways of, of our ways of looking, of uh, our, our view, our sense, our conception of ourselves, our anthropology, 
our, in, our sense of our individual self, our sense of our communities, but also our anthropology, our sense of what human beings are and what their place is in the cosmos. And a sense of each other and a sense of um, individual uh, things uh, and, and beings in, in, in the natural world and a sense of the whole world. All this, something else is called and that has to do with um, higher values. They are uh, necessary, they're implicated, as I said, in, in our concern for all this when we look at the whole problem. It's a multi-leveled problem. Some people, as I mentioned the other day, some people have said to me or something like, ah, soul-making, darling, it's really what humanity needs right now. It's the... It's the new frontier, or you know, in this time of sort of post-postmodernism, it's um, it's got all the aspects that are needed for taking us forward out of the sort of quagmire or stagnation that came with postmodernism and where we are now in our whole vision of um, of ourselves and uh, philosophy and all, all that stuff, and that maybe in that sense, in being a um, a new frontier um, it's what Hartman would call um, one of the noble values of our time and in his sense of the word remember um, the n- nobility in his meaning is, is those that look for the new um, but uh, nobility in, in his language uh, looks for the new not only it's uh, it's got its antennae out for new a sensibility to new, uh, unfamiliar values with respect to a certain culture, time and place. Excuse me. Its prime motivation is not just to address the crises, for example, the ecological crises it finds itself in. Um, So people say stuff like that. Sometimes some people say stuff like that, but I, I certainly think that soul making is not um, is not the fix all of all modern problems uh, by by any stretch, um, and whether it's noble in, in Hartman's sense, I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. People sometimes say, "Well, the, everything that involves soul making practice, the the flexibility and openness uh, conceptually uh, and in terms of logos, that that." sort of is a way to move forward out of the um, limitations of postmodern philosophy which just, uh, if you like, shoots down uh, negatively different conceptions. Yeah. But actually there's a, a practical possibility of having some flexibility, some openness, and, and then the actual practical capacity to move between different conceptions that and, and the kind of attunement that it asks for, the kind of reverence that it brings uh, the sensing the soul of the world the re-enchantment of self of the world uh, all these are um, necessary and new, I don't know um, I'm not sure so certainly for some people for sure, for some people um, soul making practice will kind of support and encourage and draw out and grow the virtues, the moral virtues. And for some people, it 
will it already has legitimized and supported their um, for instance their uh, activism their engagement their uh, work for the protection of the earth and species and humanity it's supported a growth in their care and the sensing the soul um, that kind of underpins that will all that will kind of contribute does will contribute to material help of these crises with regard to these crises and and that's great and it's necessary and it's really important but you know at another level soul making perhaps is ultimately useless we could say What's it for? Yes, there's these fruits. And that's, as I said, necessary, wonderful, and really important. But the soul loves soul-making. Period. What's soul-making for? Soul-making is for soul-making. Soul-making is the purpose of soul-making. It's In that sense, it's useless. It has nothing, uh, nothing else that it's in the service of... Um, primarily, or as its main reason. There are gifts, there are offshoots, there are um, bestowals, and um, it provides support for all kinds of things, including a reduction in suffering of self and other. But like all the highest values, so like beauty and art and all that, essentially it's useless, but in the best sense of the word. Somehow it um, crowns our lives, blesses and anoints our lives and our deaths, our whole sense of existence. That is perhaps ultimately what it's for and ultimately what we care about, what bestows meaningfulness on life, fulfillment in life, beauty. It's what we love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.